0: Hello everybody, this is Father Tom Provenzano, welcoming you to another episode of the Acts Podcast. And today we're going to ask the questions, what are Passion Tide and Holy Week? What do those terms mean? And what should we be looking forward to as we enter into these final days of Lent? And before we get to that, we will get to this, our opening prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Almighty and ever living God, who as an example of humility for the human race to follow, caused our Savior to take flesh and submit to the cross, graciously grant that we may heed his lesson of patient suffering and so merit to share in his resurrection, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. Mary, help of Christians, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. So, yes, we are. Uh, quickly approaching the final and really the most important week not just of Lent but really of, of the entire liturgical year the entire church year really everything kind of builds up to this moment and then flows afterward from it and uh, even you know down to we think of uh, back in December which doesn't seem that long ago maybe but back in December was Christmas and we celebrated our Lord's birth. Even there we get kind of foreshadowings of the fact that our Lord was born for a purpose and for a mission, and that mission was to go to Jerusalem and was to suffer and die, but also to rise again. And we, we could think of that specifically in the account of the Magi, of the these mysterious visitors from the East who bring the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and then Gold uh, is for a king. Frankincense is for God and myrrh, an ointment that would have anointed the bodies of the dead to help preserve preserve those bodies. So that even there, there are reminders that our Lord would die and suffer and die. But as divine... Symbolized by that incense, he would indeed rise again. And so everything really, like I said, leads up to this moment, to this very pivotal week, and then really all the celebrations that come after it, and the rest of the liturgical year really is a further and deeper reflection on what our Lord's Passion, and specifically Resurrection, mean. Now what I wanted to go through with you today, and today is only going to be a Today really and next week's uh, episodes are really only going to be kind of one-parters. I know I've been trying to do uh, something associated with the liturgy uh, the first half of the episode and then something uh, to do with culture or uh, society you know, in the second half. But we're going to kind of forego the social commentary this week anyway, even though there's certainly a lot to talk about. It's not that there's nothing going on. Uh, in the world at large, but I, I really do want to, though, concentrate more specifically on these matters of our, our of our worship and of our uh, celebration of our Lord's uh, Paschal Mystery in the days that are coming ahead. So I, I mentioned that at the top of the episode this idea of passion tide, and I think I, I probably did also uh, make reference to it in the last episode, this idea that the last two weeks of of the Lenten season are uh, distinct in a way from the the five weeks that uh, preceded it, uh, in the sense that back in the in the old calendar, uh, when the uh, we we still used the uh, missal of 1962, which was essentially the mass as it had been promulgated from the Council of Trent. The fifth Sunday of Lent was Passion Sunday, and that was a, the Sunday when the the Lord's Passion was read, uh, much like we do it now. Um, the following week was Palm Sunday, and that's when we they would read the account of our Lord's triumphal entrance into Jerusalem and have the blessing of palms. And then that would begin Holy Week. That would begin the cycle of of Holy Week and then into the Triduum. With the reform of the Council, the Second Vatican Council in, in the 1960s, and with the liturgical form that came after it, Passion Sunday and Palm Sunday were combined together. Now we talk about it as the Palm Sunday of the Lord's Passion and it's done on that that uh 6th Sunday from the beginning of it's not called the 6th Sunday of Lent it's called you know the uh the Palm Sunday of the of the Lord's Passion uh, but it it comes in that that 6 week when I mean, we do the two things together okay so what what's going to happen well I'll get to I'll get to what's going to happen there uh, a little bit later. But for right now, what you what you need to understand is that from that that fifth Sunday on, there is a shift in emphasis in terms of the readings and in some cases, even in terms of the prayers. like the the priest during the mass is asked to use the preface uh, for the passion as opposed to the regular Lenten uh, prefaces. And the readings shift from, in a general way, talking about our need to be holy, our need to be merciful, our need to give alms, our need to pray. Those readings, especially the gospel readings, shift to the events that lead up to our Lord's Passion. And this week we've been hearing a lot of readings concerned with the controversies and the kind of the confrontation that Jesus has with the uh, with the scribes and the Pharisees and with the uh, some others, uh, concerning who he is, what his identity is, who does he claim that he is, and uh, Jesus making very plain claims that you know he is something more than Abraham. He is something more than a prophet. He is something more than what has come previously. He's just not an ordinary prophet. Uh In fact, he even makes the bold statement that before Abraham was I am. And we're getting most of this from John's Gospel. Pretty much the reading, the Gospel readings this week and and into next week until Wednesday really come from John's Gospel. And if we are not aware of what Jesus means when he says I am, it's very easy for us to miss it. When Moses, in the book of Exodus, went to the burning bush, which was the theophany, to use a big five dollar word, which was this man- manifestation of God in this this flame that burned, but yet did not consume the the bush that it was um, uh, that was on fire. Moses says, you know, who am I, for A, who am I to be doing this and to go? But second of all, what should I say your name is? When they ask me, You know, what's, what's the name of, of this God that is sending you to Egypt in order to set the Israelites free, what, what shall I say? And God says to him, you should say, I am sent you. I am who am. And that's sometimes interpreted in, in different ways. Some uh interpreters, especially Jewish Jewish interpreters, will say it's kind of God's way of saying, you know, bug off. <laughs> you know, to to know a name and to speak a name in a way is to have control over that other person. I always make the example of, you know, if our when we were children, if our or are there any children listening, you know, if, if our mothers or fathers call us by our name, if they call us by our first name, we might have an indication that things might be friendly. But if they, I know in my case, if my mother called me by my full name, then I knew I was in trouble. And if she called me, not just Thomas Provenzano, but Thomas Michael Provenzano, if she, if she called me by my, including my middle name, my full name, including my middle name, then I knew that I was really in trouble. Okay, I knew I was really in trouble. And I almost would become kind of petrified. Or, you know, I've I've been a teacher, and I know that if you call, if you see some kids doing something wrong, if you just say, hey, you kids, stop, they're usually not going to stop right away. But if you call them by their name, quite often, not always maybe, but quite often, they do kind of stop. That name and that invoking of the name, the fact that you know their identity and you know who they are, at least to a certain extent, kind of stops them in their tracks and you're able to kind of take control over that situation. So the idea was was that you know maybe in saying I am who am, it's it's God's way of saying my name is mysterious and my name is really, it's not for you really to know and it's not for you to worry about. But there's also another level at which you can understand this: that you know, God is the very act of being. He, God, is being itself. Okay, if you go and you read uh, Thomas Aquinas or you read other uh, commentators, that God is saying something very deep and profound about His identity and who He is, and that it is so profound that even though. He lets this name sort of go. He does kind of give Moses this name, I am who am. Uh, it's something beyond our ability to comprehend and abo- uh, beyond our ability to truly comprehend and control. So when Jesus says several times in John's gospel, you know I am, I am the gate. You know, I am the sheep gate, the sheepfold. I am the door through which you enter. Uh, before Abraham was, I am. His those who were listening to him, his own Jewish brothers, would have understood exactly what he was talking about. Uh, they would have known that he was he was identifying himself with God, and in fact, it prompted at one point them trying to. Uh, to stone him, because he had made this assertion, and so we're we're reading in the gospel readings, you know, about these um, about these confrontations. In the Old Testament readings, we're hearing a kind of a combination of things. Uh, the The Monday uh, of uh, the the fifth week, we have the beautiful reading uh, from Daniel about the story of Susanna. And Susanna is the woman who is trapped. She is falsely accused of adultery. And uh, basically Daniel proves her innocence. She's about to actually be executed. She's about to be uh, given the death penalty for the crime of adultery. She was basically trapped by two elders of, of Israel who had become corrupted. And uh, who witnessed against her, but Daniel comes to the rescue and proves in the court that these two men had falsely accused Susanna. Then we hear the, the story uh, later on Wednesday of the three young men, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, the three young men from the the furnace, the fiery furnace, again from the book of Daniel, how they had resisted uh, breaking the Jewish dietary laws in Babylon, that as the king had ordered, uh, and were again were going to be put to death, but by being put into this furnace that was so hot that nothing could survive it, even the men who had, had made the fire uh, and who threw the three young men in and found themselves consumed uh, by the flames. It was so intense. But yet these uh, three young men survive. They survive this experience. And one stands with them who we presume is an angel. Uh, it could be a theophany of, of our Lord. We're, you know, we're not really sure about that because it says, I see the three young men, the King Nebuchadnezzar says, I see the three young men and one who is with them who appears as a son of God. And so the theme here is God rescuing his people from danger from the power of sin and from the power of the evil one and uh in one of the few cases where you have daily readings that really do match up pretty well when you have the reading of the of uh susanna and it's a rather long reading a lot of times the the priest or you know will opt for the the shorter reading but if you you know take some time read the whole story it's a beautiful beautiful story but on the, the monday of, of the fifth week that's paired with the story of the woman caught in adultery okay from john's gospel and again that is a case you know with susanna she was innocent and falsely accused in the case of this woman caught in adultery no one disputes the fact that she had actually uh, committed this transgression. But yet again, Jesus comes to her rescue as a sign that he did not come to condemn, but came to save. And of course, giving that admonition, go and sin no more. So that when we go to confession, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about confession before the, uh, the episode is up, that when we go to confession, certainly is, it is with that intention that we're not going to transgress again. And sometimes we are, sometimes we do. Uh, sometimes we need more than one confession. We need more than one Lent. We need more than one you know period of fasting in order to really uh, free ourselves you know, of whatever vice uh, we find ourselves a slave to. Uh, but nonetheless, the Lord is there to guide us and to bring us along on his way. He rescues the innocent, but he also saves those who are guilty, but who seek his path. Now, along with with these readings from the Old Testament, you're also going to get a lot from the prophets, from Jeremiah and from Isaiah in particular. And We'll probably talk a little bit more, more about uh, Isaiah, in particular, next next week, when we talk about Holy Week in a more specific way. Um, so the the idea here is that with with Jeremiah, we have a prophet of the Old Testament who very much is a a foreshadowing. His life kind of represents a foreshadowing of Christ and Christ's suffering. Uh, Jeremiah was someone who was in Jerusalem, ministered to Jerusalem prior to the fall of the city to the Babylonians, and he kept on trying to warn the uh, people of the need to return to the Lord in order to avoid a greater punishment. That basically his message to them was, we have sinned against the Lord, we have turned against him, we are going to experience a chastisement and a punishment. But if we turn to the Lord now, it's not going to be that bad. (laughs) But if we don't turn back to the Lord, it's going to be a lot worse. We will lose the city. We will lose everything. And sadly, uh, he was not listened to. And in fact, there were many plots to kill uh, Jeremiah. So those are some of the things we're going to be hearing about from Jeremiah. And then specifically Isaiah, we have the beautiful uh, poems about the suffering servant. And now the suffering servant servant of the Lord, who is a witness to the Lord, who suffers for his service to the, to the Lord, uh, is really meant in the Old Testament to be uh, a representative of Israel. That the, the servant is not one person, but the servant is the, the people of Israel. and that it's they are the servant of the Lord. They are the ones who are sent forth to be his witness. And, you know, they are the ones who uh, at times suffer for that witness. The Christian church and, you know, the Catholic church in particular has taken uh, the suffering servant as a type, if you will, or a foreshadowing of Christ. And that these represent uh, predictions, prophecies connected with Christ and with his coming into the world, and with his eventual suffering and dying for the sins of the people. And again, we'll go into more onto that next week when we talk more about uh, Holy Week in particular. Now, I'm using this term, Passion Tide, really officially with the Reformed liturgy, this distinction, between Lent and Passion Tide has really been eliminated completely. Um, if you've noticed, like I was at Mass at a parish this weekend, and they had the uh, the statues and the crucifix over the over the altar covered with uh, purple cloths. So there's a, again a tradition uh, after Passion Sunday of of covering statues and and covering up the um, crucifix for those two weeks before Easter. Again, that's not something mandated, it's something that is suggested you could do it. But but none of these things uh, is, is really mandated and I'm I'm using the term passion tide really in a very general and and informal sense. Again, that the the terms of liturgically there are vestiges there. If we look at the readings and we look at some of the prayers uh, but officially speaking, uh, it's Lent. I mean, it's. I mean, it always was Lent. It wasn't an official season, but there was a little bit more of an acknowledgement of this of this shift, as I said, because now we have the the combining of Passion Sunday and Palm Sunday together on that on that sixth Sunday. If you pray. The Divine Office, and maybe this is something as we move into the Easter season, I'll talk a little more about the Divine Office uh, specifically. uh, You're also going to get a shift in readings. Now, the the Divine Office, the Liturgy of the Hours, it goes by many names. Usually when they talk about the office or the breviary, they're talking about the book itself that these prayers are prayed out of. Uh, since the uh, reform, the prayer itself has been referred to as the Liturgy of the Hours. So the idea here is that priests and religious are required to pray. That should come as no surprise, but we're, we're called to specific prayers. Now I need to have my own personal prayer life, but there is also prayers that I am mandated in order you know, to, to pray during the day. And so with the divine office, there are various times during the day. In my case, as a Salesian religious, there's two times out of the day when we pray together in the morning and in the afternoon. We do morning prayer and evening prayer. So that's pretty easy to remember, right? But there's also other what we call hours during the day that I pray on my own. And there's really three in particular. One is called the Office of Readings. The other is called Daytime Prayer. And the other is called Night Prayer. So for the most part, the prayers are associated. The different hours of the office are associated with a time of day. Now the Office of Readings, I can pray any time, day or night. That I want. There, there are some regulations in terms of, like, you're really not supposed to pray the night, the day before, is (laughs) the night before, uh, under under some circumstances you can. Uh, But again, I don't want to get too deep into into the rules and regulations. That's not really what the point is. So, you know, but basically, most priests either pray the office of readings the first thing in the morning before they pray morning prayer. Or they'll pray it the night before they go to bed, and what they pray before they go to bed will be for the next day usually. Okay, but then morning prayer obviously is usually between six and nine in the morning. Uh, between you know roughly nine in the morning and you know roughly four you know four or five, you have options of praying a daytime prayer and for those that are in monasteries they actually have three separate nine you know 9am 12pm and 3pm where they pray three separate times as a as an active religious as what's a member of a congregation i only have to choose one of those so i need to, usually i end up praying the mid afternoon prayer okay usually right before evening prayer sure. i know i'm kind of stretching the rules there a little bit then evening prayer is usually done you know, sometime between 5 o'clock and, and 7 o'clock at night. And again, that can vary from place to place. And then night prayer would be you know, usually right before you go to bed. And what they're made up of are a selection of the Psalms. There's a four-week cycle of Psalms. Along with a brief reading from Scripture. Uh, and then some intercessions. And at uh, morning and evening prayer, we pray the Our Father, and then a, a a closing prayer. The office of readings, which is really what I'm going to be talking about more specifically here right now, uh, is what it kind of sounds like. It's a it's a longer selection from sacred scripture. It's three psalms, or it's maybe it's one of the longer psalms cut into three parts followed by a longer selection from Scripture, either something from the Old Testament or something from the New Testament, but generally not the Gospels. But We're talking about the letters of Paul, or we're talking about the book of Revelation, or we're talking about uh, the letters from one of the other uh, New Testament figures, and then a kind of longer selection from either a church document or from one of the fathers of the church, if it's a special saint day, there might be a reading from the writings of the particular saint who were celebrating that day. But it's a slightly longer uh, reading. You know, Generally speaking, morning prayer and evening prayer, depending, might take you you know 10 minutes to pray. Or maybe even less, five minutes really, to pray. Uh, midday prayer and night prayer, even less. Officer readings might take you about 10 minutes to pray, all together, between 10 and 15 minutes. Uh, You know, if you're really taking your time with it. Uh, And the readings that you get from the Old Testament, or from the New Testament, you tend to read consecutively. So you're usually going to get a week or two, let's say if it's just during ordinary time, you're going to get a few weeks where you're, let's say, reading from a selection from St. Paul, and you're reading one of his letters, or in in the summer a lot you're going to get uh, readings, uh, you know, talking about the patriarchs and talking about the uh, uh, King David and the, the different uh, King Solomon and you know different stories from uh, those historical books. During Lent, you during the first uh, five weeks. You or Yeah, for, during the first five weeks, you're reading the Book of Exodus and a, a little, a few selections from the Book of Numbers, which is the story, the Book of Exodus, the story of Moses, and him following God's call to free the Israelites from slavery. Early Christians had a way of reading scripture in a, in a way that was uh, where they would try to find where Christ was in these Old Testament scriptures and where what were called the types of Christ. How is Christ being symbolized as a type? And where is the prefiguring of uh the Paschal Mystery and the and the mystery of, of Christ's life in the Old Testament. This is not as popular a way of uh, reading Scripture today, and in fact, it's quasi uh, controversial. And I don't again, I don't want not get into controversy today, uh, but to say that this though way of of reading the Scripture is kind of reflected in in how the Office of Readings, in this particular case, is set up. Because from the earliest days, the Church really made sense of our Lord's death and resurrection by linking it back to the events of the Exodus. So the idea that Moses is sent to free the people uh, in slavery in Egypt... Okay, Egypt in the Old Testament is the, is the place of slavery, it is a place of sin, it, it is a uh, place of oppression. And when future prophets talk about Egypt, they're usually using that term Egypt in a symbolic way, to talk about Israel's slavery to sin and how they've turned back to their old ways. So, the idea of you know Moses is a type for Christ who, rather than being sent you know to Egypt physically, is being sent to Israel uh, to free them from not the slavery, the economic slavery and oppression and political oppression, but to free them from their sins. as the Israelites pass through the waters of the Red Sea from slavery to freedom, so the Christian passes through the waters of baptism, from slavery to sin to freedom. Just as the Israelites were free, but were yet still wandering for 40 years in the desert, we too, even though Christ has set us free, by his death and resurrection, nonetheless, in a way, we're still traveling through the desert. We are waiting for that entrance into the promised land, which for us is not a a physical geographic location, but is instead uh, that new heaven and new earth that Christ will inaugurate with the coming of the new age. And just as in that journey, where the Israelites faced so many hardships, so many struggles. They were given the manna to eat, the miraculous manna in the desert, this mysterious substance that appeared on the ground in the morning that they made into cakes to eat in order to sustain them for that journey through the desert so we are given the bread of life we are given the eucharist which is our bread from heaven which is our sustenance and what we believe is going to happen is that you know the eucharist is a gift for us here and now when once once the israelites entered into the promised land the manna stopped the manna was only really there for them while they were wandering in the desert and on pilgrimage. And once they entered into the promised land, the manna ceased to appear. And that's what's going to happen at the end of time. We have the Mass and we have the Eucharist for us here and now as sort of the foretaste of the heavenly banquet that we will participate in to come, but also that bread for the journey, that bread that sustains us, Uh, And that keeps us uh, safe and keeps us strong as we make that journey on. And so in the Office of Readings, pretty much we read most, if not uh, the entire uh, book of Exodus, again, along with a few selections from the book of Numbers. Beginning uh, on the fifth week, it shifts. We shift to the letter to the Hebrews. And the letter to the Hebrews uh, can't get much different, right? The letter to the Hebrews, really along with the book of Revelation, is, is probably the most mysterious book in the New Testament, certainly. And it's one that many scholars kind of argue over and fight over. Uh, who wrote it? We're not really sure. There are some that will insist that it was Paul. Uh, there were even others in ancient times who did not believe Paul wrote it. And uh, there was one of the church fathers who, uh, whose name is escaping me right now who said flat out, only the Holy Spirit knows who wrote the book of uh, the letter to the Hebrews. And even if it was a letter, there, are, there is some theory, there's some scholars who believe that it may have been a sermon or some type of a discourse, and that the audience were uh, Jewish priests who had served in the altar, in the, in the temple, and that they were being trained in the new way, in the uh, new sacrifice of the Eucharist. But the main point of the letter to the Hebrews is that Jesus is the high priest. He offers a sacrifice which is greater than the sacrifices of the Old Testament because he's offering his very self on the cross. and that he has come to save humanity from their sins, that he is the high priest, he has come to offer sacrifice, and this sacrifice is greater than all the other sacrifices of old. Uh, and so this is we're going to be reading through through next week the letter, to the Hebrews. Now, when the Easter season begins after Holy Week, excuse me, after Easter week, okay, because next week is Holy Week, Palm Sunday through the Triduum, then on the Monday that follows after the octave of Easter, then In the office of readings, we will be reading from the book of Revelation. And again, pretty much reading the book of Revelation straight through. And so uh, that's why maybe we'll go into a little more detail. uh, Because like the letter to the Hebrews, and even more than the letter to the Hebrews, uh, the book of Revelation can be a tough read. It's it's something that a lot of people really have a hard time uh, understanding and a hard time really getting a grasp of, uh, and is probably the, uh, the single most misunderstood book in sacred scripture. So that's a basic overview of the masses and of what we're looking at in the Office of Readings. Now, to close up, Holy Week begins on the Sunday coming up with Palm Sunday of the Lord's Passion, and what are the things you're going to notice when you go to Mass? And God please that you're able to go to Mass. You know that your churches are open and that capacity is enough that you can you can go if if you if you want. Different uh, parishes, depending on circumstances do it different ways, and I'm not sure, again, with the, with the new protocols, I'm not sure how it's going to, to look like, but one of two things are going to happen. Either you're going to walk in and ushers are going to give you palms, and then you're going to go to your pew, or you'll be asked to stay in kind of the vestibule area or outside the, uh, the doors of, of the church. The priest will bless the palms, and then he will read the gospel of Jesus's triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Then, after he proclaims the gospel, and this is all happening again, the, the priest anyway is normally going to be uh, at the back of the church, okay, at the, uh, not at the altar, but on the other at, at the other end. And then either he will have all the people and himself process in, or else uh, he will just process in. The people will be in the, in the pews already, uh, raising their, their palms. Then there is no uh, penitential rite. Basically, the, the sprinkling with the holy water and the, uh, the reading of the, of the uh, gospel of the entrance into Jerusalem uh, takes the place basically of the of the penitential right. Uh, there are two readings, like we you know, two readings in are responsorial psalm like normal, and then it's the reading of the passion. And this Sunday we'll be hearing from Mark's uh, uh, passion, the account according to Mark. On Good Friday, we also hear the uh, reading of the of the passion. Uh, but that is always from John, and again, we'll maybe talk a little bit more about that, and you know the beauty of John's gospel, but also the kind of that we need to be very careful when we when we when we do read uh, his gospel account uh, because of the he talks about the Jews uh, in an adversarial way. But we also have we always have to keep in mind that, he, that we are not talking about the Jewish people. We're not talking about every Jew who's ever lived in history. Uh, we're talking about very specific people who were opposing our Lord. And we always have to keep in mind that our blessed Mother is Jewish. That our our Lord and Savior was is Jewish. That they were they, the apostles were Jewish. They were all born and were practicing Jews, and, and uh, most of the early disciples were Jews. So, and in fact, they really thought of themselves, it's not until a little bit later, when friction between the camps kind of erupts, that that you kind of have this separation, and that they really thought of themselves as being something separate from uh, Judaism. Uh, so we need to always be careful. And again, we'll talk maybe a little bit more about that later on. So what you're going to notice, obviously, about the reading of the Passion is that it's broken up in parts. Usually the, uh, the priest takes the words of Jesus. It's kind of almost read like a play or like a drama. And usually there's different parts for a narrator and for the crowd and uh, for particular people. And uh so the, that's read. The priest is instructed, because it usually takes a little longer, obviously, it's the entire account of the passion. The uh priest is instructed to give a short homily <laughs> a brief homily. Uh not not to go uh kind of too long with things. To kind of let the let the drama of the reading speak for itself and let the let the words of the gospel really penetrate in, into your heart itself and then the mass goes on as normal uh you know these are days when a lot of you know a lot of special things happen uh, there are some parishes where they will actually bring in a donkey and the priest will they'll do a little mini procession from the end of the block or from a couple of blocks away where the priest will actually be riding a donkey like Jesus did or you know, I've, uh, on Friday we'll talk more about the, the Via Crucis, the, the Stations of the Cross. I've seen situations where they actually had like, Roman soldiers on horses and stuff like that. So it's, it's a time where the, the people sometimes can get very kind of involved and, uh, and uh, kind of add their own flair to uh, the celebrations. So that's where we're going to end it right now. So the last two weeks of Lent, Used to be known as Passion Tide. We really don't use that term much anymore, but many of the readings and prayers still kind of reflect this change of emphasis from you know the Lenten sacrifices and prayer and almsgiving to one more of, of concentrating on the specific events and the uh, around Jesus's death and resurrection and w- what those events mean. Uh, Sunday is going to be Palm Sunday, which kicks off Holy Week, the most solemn week of the year. And again, we'll talk more about Holy Week next week. I uh, talked a little bit about the the readings and about the what's called the Office of Readings uh, in the Divine Office. And again, when we get into the Easter season a little more, I'll talk a little more about the Divine Office, what it is, how to pray it. And uh, and really to try to promote it, because it, it it's thought of sometimes as the uh, the prayer for priests and clerics or religious, but really the church has proposed it as the prayer for all Christians, and so maybe I'll go into a little bit of what the what those prayers are, what they mean, and really that it's a good idea to pray them. You know, I have to pray them. You don't if you're not a cleric or a, a religious, but nonetheless, it's not a bad thing if if maybe you did so. Maybe we'll talk a little again as we get more into the Easter season. I'll leave it there. God bless all of you. Thank you for making it through the entire episode. And know that you're in my prayers. Please pray for me. And may God bless you. And know that the Lord loves you today and always. Bye-bye. God bless you.